I'm Sammy J. Karam of Populist. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Jesse Isinger, a Pulitzer Prize winning senior reporter at ProPublica and a former reporter at The Wall Street Journal. As a quick disclaimer before we start, the views expressed by our guests do not necessarily represent my opinion or the opinion of Populist. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be welcoming Jesse Isinger, who is a senior reporter at ProPublica, uh, who was for six years a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jesse is also a Pulitzer Prize winner for national reporting in 2011. And last but not least, perhaps uh, the thing that's uh, the most timely that we should mention is you're the author of a forthcoming book from Simon & Schuster about uh, white-collar prosecutions, or perhaps you're going to tell me lack thereof in many cases. Exactly. Uh, welcome, Jesse Isinger. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Sammy. Very good. So um, would you like to start discussing uh, the book, since this is uh, something that's probably... When, when is the book coming out? Uh, we don't have a pub date yet, but maybe the spring of next year, 2017. Uh, and is this about uh, mostly about Wall Street or the financial industry, or is it something that's uh, more general? Well, I got interested in it uh, because of the aftermath of the financial crisis. I've been covering the crisis. Uh, I was worried about a crisis before the um, banks blew up in 2008. And then uh, in the aftermath, I covered a lot of the banking activities. Uh, that's what we won our Pulitzer for, was uh, the CDO business and kind of shenanigans in the CDO business. Uh, and then I kind of waited for something to happen, these guys to go to prison or uh, the Department of Justice and the SEC to crack down and kept waiting and waiting and uh, scratching my head and we didn't see anything. And like many others, I was very surprised about this. And uh, so I started reporting about what what happened. And, and now, now you're referring to primarily uh, top executives or even mid-level executives at Wall Street banks? Yes, exactly. I um, came to the conclusion that, well, I wondered why aren't there any prosecutions of top corporate executives at these banks? Um, why aren't there really any prosecutions of any individuals um, at the banks and uh, hedge funds and mortgage companies uh, uh, and rating agencies, et cetera, et cetera? I think there was an enormous amount of bad behavior uh, that I consider to have been fraud. Um, so where was it? Where were these prosecutions? So let's stop here for a second, because uh, you said that you consider the bad behavior to have been fraud. You know, a lot has been written on this. There have been many uh, reports in the written media, on television, a lot of question marks as to why there has been no, uh, no charge, there have been no charges. And um, the answers that have been put forward some of them were that the behavior was not necessarily illegal. So the question on whether it was fraud um, is, is not completely settled, at least from my, from my layman's reading, doesn't appear to be completely settled. And also some people have said that um, these cases may be too difficult to carry to the end, and therefore 
that led many of the uh, authorities not not to even try. What do you think of that? Of either of these responses? Right. Well, th those are definitely the things that you hear. Um, uh, on the first issue, what you generally hear from bank executives and from prosecutors um, defending themselves is, yes, there was a lot of recklessness and stupidity, but recklessness and stupidity are not fraudulent um, necessarily in this country. Um, and the crisis was mainly caused by recklessness and stupidity and not fraud. Um, and the answer to that is um, they're not mutually exclusive. You can um, have recklessness, stupidity, and fraud. Um, and in fact, what you have seen is uh, a couple of things. One, you've seen um, the banks plead guilty and settle significant civil charges stemming from activities in the financial crisis. Also, you've seen pleading, uh, guilty pleas and um, charges, extensive charges, criminal and civil, for activities before and after the financial crisis from the major banks, fixing LIBOR, fixing um, the Forex markets, uh, the um, robo-signing scandals um, about mortgages. And so you've seen very bad behavior that in another context could easily have tipped to being criminal behavior uh, for individual that that the prosecutors could have brought individuals uh, and charged individuals for. So that's one thing. The, the behavior and the distinctions between the civil charges and the criminal charges aren't that great in these cases. Um, and a lot of prosecutors actually sort of think that there could have been um, criminal charges, which brings me to the second point, which is that if you really... Um, talk to a prosecutor and get him or her um, in a bar at night with a drink, most of them would say, uh, look, you know, I didn't see any cases that should have been um, brought, but by God, they should have brought XYZ case. Almost every single one um, doesn't understand why uh, there weren't more charges for, you know, Angelo Mazzillo or uh, executives at Lehman Brothers. So there are a variety of favorite cases that people point to um, that they can't figure out. Um, and then finally, there was one guy who was prosecuted. I wrote about him in the New York Times Magazine a the, couple of years ago. The one guy who ended up going to jail. He actually goes to prison. Who was not um, a very senior individual, was he? He was, he was a top, he was not a top, top executive, but he was a fairly high up guy at Credit Suisse. Um, and that he's the one guy who went to uh, prison for activities related to the financial crisis, Kareem Sarageldon. And He's the um, only one from the- He's the only one. The, uh, there's just one person. And I mean, and it's even way, worse. Than, uh, he, he, am I right that he pleaded guilty? Or? Yes, he so pleaded that, guilty. So in a way, he, he, it isn't that the prosecutors had to overcome a, a hurdle to, to prove. Exactly. Right. Exactly. He's the guy, he's the schmuck who pleaded guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he should have fought. Mm -hmm. um, I think he pleaded guilty because he felt like he'd done something wrong and he wanted to uh, um, atone. Um, so in some ways it's admirable, but uh, this is not an admirable quality that uh, most bankers have. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that one person went to prison actually is a very bad fact for the government, I think, because it shows that um, even if 
the majority of the causes of the financial crisis, which I agree with, were not fraudulent. They were um, recklessness and stupidity. Mm -hmm. There was at least this one act of fraud. And the one act of fraud, as you would well understand um, as a former investor, was something, uh, what they did was Kareem Sarageldin's traders mismarked their portfolio of residential mortgage-backed securities and um, and knew that they were mismarking it, and Sarah Gelden knew that they were mismarking it, um, and then they moved that up the chain. And was chain. he dealing with very large volumes, or was he, uh, compared to others, more of a side player? Uh, he, he was more of a side player. Um, I mean, there were fairly big numbers, but not huge. Um, but uh, it was significant enough that um, it... Uh, if I remember correctly, Credit Suisse had to restate a little bit of its earnings because of it. Um, I think what happened in reality was they rolled in a lot of uh, other charges, you know, charges in that quarter um, based on other shenanigans. So, as you well know, uh, Kareem Saragelden's traders were not the only ones on the street in 2008 and 2009 who were mismarking their portfolio. I mean, it is just, it would be ridiculous well, to this is a, this is a, And this is only one aspect of the alleged or potential um, bad behavior that's taken place. I mean, I've seen that um, in some cases, um, the people who were doing the due diligence for the underwriting were uh, maybe not taking it as seriously as they should have. There were cases where uh, 60% of the mortgages that were approved did not comply with the bank's own rules. Um, so this is a, uh, a a collection of situations where there was uh, bad behavior and in, in, in many in many different steps. Absolutely, bad behavior throughout the um, chain of mortgages and the housing markets um, and mortgage securities and collateralized debt obligations and uh, bad behavior uh, from the top executives as their banks were on the verge of collapsing. As, um, as you understand and as most people understand, sometimes people panic and um, they're worried about their future and their livelihood and the uh, collapse of their institutions and they uh, mislead people. Um, and in the past, the government has prosecuted people for that. That's what Ken Lay went to prison for. He didn't go to prison for any of the off-balance sheet vehicles at Enron. He went to prison because he lied to the public about um, the state of the business um, when Enron was collapsing. What, so, what do you make of the argument that uh, after 9-11, the FBI had to move a lot of people away from uh, this kind of investigation and more towards homeland security. Um, for example, I saw that during the savings and loan crisis, more than a thousand bankers were convicted. Uh, a third of them were top executives, perhaps perhaps not as uh, as as high in the hierarchy as as uh, some of the top firms here in New York, but considered top executives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but at the time, there were as many as uh, a thousand FBI agents that were uh, working on this. Whereas post nine eleven, 
it was a lot fewer apparently. Uh, so the resource shift at the um, FBI is a, is a factor in why they've lost the will and ability to do this. It's not the only factor, um, but I think it's an important one. The FBI uh, conducted a lot of the, m- conducts most of the investigations for the, um, the Department of Justice, for the prosecutors. What I what I started to do with the book is to look at the roots of this problem. And the argument is twofold. One is that it goes beyond the banks and actually um, uh, is a problem for major corporations, that the government no longer has the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives across a wide variety of major industries. And you see this in automobiles and you and other industrial companies and service companies and big tech companies and pharmaceutical companies. Um, so this isn't just the banks. Why, why do you think that is? So um, now, now let's try to answer since we haven't come up with a satisfying explanation yeah. as to why you know, first of all, on Wall Street after 2008, why why were there not more prosecutions? And, uh, you know, at the same time, maybe you can also address what, the answer to what you just said. Why, why is it that even outside of Wall Street, it, do you think it's not happening anymore? Yeah, well, so uh, I've written a book about this because um, <laughs> uh, um, I think it's actually a complex answer. I, the roots of this go back to the prosecutions of, uh, in the post-NASDAQ bubble period uh, from the late 1990s, early 2000s. As you know, we had a bubble. Um, and uh, after the bubble, almost every major uh, or many major accounting scandals at major companies were prosecuted. And when they were prosecuted, they put the top executives in prison from Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, Tyco, Global Crossing, etc. They prosecuted the Health South um, CEO, although they lost. Um, and many and Arthur others. Anderson, if you or uh, Arthur Anderson, and related to the um, the uh, Enron case, that was the case where they prosecuted a company, not the top executives. But they were focused mainly on individuals, and they successfully prosecuted them. Um, and so that was a major accomplishment, but it actually um, had the seeds of the destruction of their ability to do this, uh, and for a couple of reasons, mainly Arthur Anderson. There was an enormous corporate and defense bar backlash to the prosecution of the firm. Um, And now it is seen um, not only by defense attorneys and corporations as an example of an unjust prosecution of excess. In other words, maybe they should have gone after a few individuals, but preserved the firm and let it survive. Exactly. Um, uh, but it, so it was. It's widely viewed as a uh, an example of prosecutorial abuse, even by pe- most prosecutors today, um, and certainly by the leadership of the Obama administration, Justice Department, at the early stages of the um, the the sort of first wave of leadership at the Obama administration, DOJ. The second wave happens to be. Um, made up of people who were involved in the prosecution and prosecuted Anderson. One aspect of the book is that I'm going to try to rehabilitate that decision. I think that was the right decision. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, and the short story there is that Arthur Anderson was a serially awful, um, malign accounting firm that was a kind of lick sp- spittle for corporate malfeasance. And uh, they were looking the other way at a 
wide variety of corporate fraudsters and enabling them, and uh, there needed to be a message sent. So when people use this analogy of Anderson to say, you know, we don't want to go after so-and-so firm or so-and-so bank because the impact and the ramifications uh, on the economy, whether it's the New York economy or whether it's the national economy or whether it's, frankly, the entire financial architecture, um, the, the idea that we should not go after some of the big players for that reason doesn't, uh, doesn't carry a lot of weight with you, it sounds like. It doesn't carry any weight with me. Um, I don't think that's the prosecutor's job. Um, uh, prosecutor's that was, by job the way, to- uh, I saw it in a, uh, I think it was in a TV program where one of the Justice Department officials actually Said absolutely, that, that, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Lanny Brewer, the head of uh, the criminal division of the Justice Department in the the, the, the the Obama administration, the first head of the criminal division, has invoked Anderson on numerous occasions as the as the thing that um, that Justice Department officials should be worried about the collateral consequences of prosecuting firms. First of all, we don't think about collateral consequences to a drug dealer's family or a murderer's family when we prosecute. Uh, the drug dealer or the murderer. Um, There are collateral consequences. When you put a breadwinner uh, like a drug dealer in prison, uh, a lot of people might suffer. Um, But that's not really what we think of as the prosecutor's job. Um, The second uh, second thing about the Anderson um, Prosecutor's job basically is to, if there is a suspicion of a crime, is to prosecute. Is to investigate and prosecute. Yes, justice. We need justice. Um, and, um, and And I think it undermines the question of justice in America and the, and the sense of democracy in America to um, to give corporate executives a pass. For corporate executives to commit crimes with impunity undermines the very notion of fairness in our, our democracy. And I, I think it's a major problem um, and an aspect of why we, we see so much anger out there. So, you, you know, we've talked about how some people have interpreted uh, the Anderson decision as a mistake that had unseen ramifications, and you disagree with that conclusion. But uh, do you think there are other reasons that have uh, deterred the SEC or the FBI from filing charges or initiating investigations? Perhaps um, reasons that were more personally motivated of of people who... um, you know, some people have talked about regulatory capture or about uh, the so-called revolving door. What, what do you think of all that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think that Tim Geithner, the first Treasury Secretary from Obama, called up Eric Holder and said, don't prosecute these people. I, I have not uncovered any evidence that there was any explicit message to lay off or something like that. But I do think that the revolving door plays a significant role in why we don't prosecute. And in, it's a, a subtle thing. Mainly, I think it's a skill set issue that they don't know how to do the kind of prosecutions of individuals that we used to be able to do. It's, they're very time-consuming. They're expensive. They take a lot of institutional knowledge. You have to flip lower-level employees, just like a mafia case, to get up to the capos and then the capo di tutti capi. 
and they don't do that anymore. So what they've done is they've shifted to corporate settlements, which are a lot easier to do. The defense bar likes um, corporate settlements, of course. Uh, they're very lucrative. Um, they're easier to settle with, and the corporations don't mind them as much because they're paying with OPM. They're paying with shareholder money, other people's which, money. by the way, I never completely understood the, the, the logic of a, of a, of a settlement. Uh, keeping in mind, of course, that I'm no uh, legal scholar or <laughs> you're not or, alone or, or, or expert on justice. But you know, you're basically you know the the shareholders who were in place uh, when the malfeasance took place, in many cases are long gone. So you're not really you're not really punishing them if 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 that's the idea of of punishing the owner of of the of the company. You know, they they've they've, they've probably sold long ago because now we're talking years later, and you're uh, punishing. Uh, or penalizing and and uh, getting cash, basically, from a new set of shareholders who weren't even on the scene when when the crime took place. So, I, I'm sure there's a there's a legal world where that makes sense, and I'm perfectly willing to concede that. But how do you see it? I uh, think it's a valid criticism. Um, I think that there is some small aspect of a legitimate argument to say, yes, the company should pay a lot of money and shareholders will be vigilant and they'll see that um, and uh, they'll try to be vigilant in their own companies and there'll be this general deterrent factor. But mainly, I don't think it's a particularly effective policy. And you can see that it's not an effective policy because you see recidivists, you see corporations paying fines after fines after fines. JP Morgan, Pfizer, BP, these companies pay fines, they settle with the government on multiple occasions, and then nothing, uh, and they keep doing uh, bad things. They're recidivists. So going back to this uh, question of the revolving door that we addressed a bit earlier, how, how do we take the right steps so we don't see people basing their own decisions on uh, future career prospects or other kind of uh, personal incentives. Right. Um, what I didn't uh, mention is that uh, there's also an elite affinity, I believe, that plagues prosecutors. And what I mean by that is prosecutors have gone to the best schools for their whole lives. Um, they are extremely smart people. They're very well-educated people. So they, they were high achievers from very young ages to get into the best middle schools, to get into the best high schools, to get into the best colleges, to get into the best law, law schools. And they have been, they're pleasers, and they've understood what society wants from them. Um, and they have um, strive to go to the elite schools and they come out of these elite schools and they do elite clerkships um, and they have a view of the world and a view of society. Um, and they also know all these people who are at uh, the banks and the hedge funds and they travel in these same worlds. Um, now you have to prosecute them. It's an incredibly difficult cultural uh, shift and mindset to go from sort of pleasing elites and figuring out what they want you to do to displeasing them so much that you have to throw them in prison, throw them, you know, their fathers in prison and um, uh, or mothers in some cases. Uh, and they don't have that psychological ability. So what? how do you break that um, cycle? Well, I think you can do uh, several things. One is I think you need to um, instead of hiring young go-getters at the Department of Justice as prosecutors who have very little experience and also this um, kind of elite affinity, I think you should 
um, hire older people. Um, there should be a much greater diversity of age at the um, Department of Justice for prosecutors. And if you got older people who had been in corporate law for a long time doing uh, cases and sort of got fed up with their clients or tired of serving clients and wanting to do so, some public service. So these would be people who may not be looking at a uh, position in government as much as a, as a stepping stone towards something else or exactly, perhaps perhaps more exactly. of a of a crowning of a, of a successful career let's say exactly exactly and what we have today is the justice department serves as a postdoc um, internship for future corporate defense lawyers um, they burnish their resumes by going to the department of justice that's a terrible system but if you had older people who want, as you say, this crowning achievement, um, some public service late in life, they've made the money that they want to make, um, and they know where the bodies are buried, and they have experience, um, I think that would be a great addition to the Department of Justice. Well, what about hiring people who did not necessarily go to the top elite schools or maybe people from a wider geographic area or other parts of the country? Absolutely, they, they don't necessarily know the, the the counterparties in in you know as as well from having been with them at school. Exactly, exactly. That's a, that's my second suggestion, which is break this grip of the top three, four, five law schools um, and start to hire from um, a variety of schools from a variety of places around the country and um, try to have. And is, is this what we have today, where where a handful of schools? have a large number of people on on both sides of the yes of the discussion yeah. and uh so we have we're in the grip of this kind of elite um uh meritocracy um and so uh the prosecutors and the hiring you know especially the obama people the obama people really wanted to um, professionalize the department of justice after the debacle of the bush administration um especially this the second half of the um, the Bush presidency was uh, at the Department of Justice was filled with a lot of um, crony uh, cronyism and bumbling, and we had the terrible Ted Senator Ted Stevens prosecution. We had the K the U.S. Attorney firing scandal, and we had meddling from the front office, the Monica Goodling um, scandal, if you remember that name. Um, and uh, so the Obama people come in, and they're technocrats and they're elites, and they say we're going to have to professionalize this department. And one way we're going to do this is recruit from from the top corporate law firms, young young star rising stars from the top law firms. Top to law be. firms from the Northeast Corridor, maybe? exactly. And so it's you know a what handful about top of law firms from the middle of the country. Let's say, uh, are there top law firms from the middle of the country? They uh, they don't know those those law they're, firms. They're thin, um, they're top law <laughs> yes, firms exactly. No, no, no. So yeah, it's the top firms in New York and D.C. Um, and maybe you know from the Bay Area if they really if they really want to. Um, but uh, uh, but that's where they hire from. And then they get uh, people who have a very similar mindset and a similar life experience. Um, and they want to go back to those firms. And um, many have, right? And many have. They all have. Almost everyone has. I mean, that's the other sort of shocking thing about um, prosecutors is that they almost all go into white-collar criminal so defense. So if you're a prosecutor and you're uh, in the administration or in the Justice Department, 
and your job is to go after uh, bad behavior at, at corporations. There is, you know, it's systemic. It's not necessarily a characterization of the person himself or herself, but it's almost a systemic thing if your ambition is to go back to a previ previous uh, top law firm, as you said, that you may be deterred from taking the action that you would otherwise. Yes. Um, and what you see is the people who are um, actually aggressive about this stuff get very bad reputations. They get effectively blackballed. So Neil Borofsky was the um, inspector general for the TAR program, the bailout program, and made a lot of stink about how the bailout uh, was too generous to the banks. Um, and when he came back, he had a hard time finding a job in, um, in, at a white shoe firm. Uh, Sheila Baer had a very hard time after being the head of the FDIC and being tough on the banks, um, getting a job um, in corporate America. Uh, and you see this over and over from the very few people who stick their ne necks out. Um, they get them chopped off, their heads chopped off. So uh, people know that, and they can read it. Um, so now your incentives are, as a young prosecutor, um, not to be unreasonable, not to be overly aggressive. You want to show off to um, the, your counterparts, so you want to be seen as very smart and a, a tough and wily negotiator um, and be able to cite all the precedents and come up with imaginative arguments and amass a lot of evidence. But at the very end of the day, you want to be seen as reasonable uh, and not unreasonable, a sort of man or woman of proportion, um, as someone who the people on the other side of the table can envision as a future partner. Um, and that leads to all sorts of terrible incentives. And the reason why uh, you want to do that is that you go from making $150,000 as a prosecutor to making uh, $1.5 million and upwards as a partner at a major law firm. So you're gonna, you know you're going to go there eventually. Right. Um, and the question is just when and how much fun you want to have and how, you can, uh, how long you can go before uh, your kids start to uh, – hit high school and uh, you need to spend on expensive private yeah, I, I see your point that if somebody is in their 40s or, or 30s or even early 50s, you might say, um, that you know their time in government is, is probably not that long in the context of an entire career. And uh, you know their goal after leaving government is to find a good position. So right. it's, in a way, it's, it's very difficult, not impossible, but difficult for one uh, person to uh, swim against the tide and uh, try to be a hero and, and uh, then kind of uh, quietly pay the, pr the price uh, on their own <laughs> for having right. done so. All the incentives uh, push you to um, ultimately you know, be reasonable and, and come to settlements and not to prosecute individuals um, and not to take risks. Um, it's very risky to prosecute individuals. And if you lose, the career black mark that you have if you lose a big case is so much greater than not pursuing a case. Um, and uh, the criticism for that is uh, very difficult and uh, abstract. And you can always say, well, the evidence wasn't there. Um, so uh, all the incentives are wrong. Well, you know, These guys should be paid a lot more money. Um, so so that it's never going to be... Uh, it's never going to... I mean, even if they, you said it's $150,000, you know, even if you double it or, or, you know, let's be outrageous and say, you know, you triple it. 
now you're making 450,000. That, that is a lot of money, but compared to what you may be leaving on the table by being uh, very aggressive as a prosecutor, it's still, if I'm using the numbers you cited earlier, not not a not a very large amount of money. Right. You're not going to get. Um, even if you did that, you wouldn't be um, wealthy, but you'd be able to live in New York City um, reasonably comfortably with two salaries at three hundred thousand each. Um, um, that's the, that's a living wage. Yeah, but they're not in, in these New positions York. for their whole career, right? I mean, they're, no. They're, but you could, and I think that there are people who would stay there for their career. Um, if you could make uh, a serious, prosperous, affluent wage, um, and the uh, you're making a lot of money as a corporate defense lawyer, but they a lot of people complain about that. They don't like those jobs. Um, they don't like having to serve clients and uh, have the clients tell them what to say, um, and that doesn't make them feel good about themselves. Prosecutors generally sort of feel good about um, what they're doing. They feel like w- uh, what they're doing is righteous right. and. Uh, um, uh, I mean, I'm mentioning this because I'm thinking maybe, you know, the money is clearly a factor, but, you know, there may be another answer in kind of uh, realigning the incentives somehow or, as you said, hiring people who are older towards the end of their career or, uh, you know, I don't advocate it, but uh, something perhaps worth discussing that if you've been in a pos- position as a prosecutor then maybe, uh, you know, for a certain period afterwards, you shouldn't be in a certain kind of job that might uh, lead you to feel like like uh, you, 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 there are some actions you don't want to take while you're working at the government. Am I making sense? Or? You mean uh, so a three-year ban from uh, white-collar defense I, I work after? Um, I know it sounds drastic, and I'm only bringing it up, you know, in the interest of, of debating it, but... What, what do you think of that? Do you think that's you know, too, too harsh? I, um, I don't think it's too harsh. I think those are relatively meaningless um, uh, prohibitions because these guys get brought in. We have similar prohibitions on lobbying, um, and they are completely ineffectual. And the reason they're ineffectual is that the definitions of what lobbying is is um, the definition of what lobbying is is very narrowly written. So these guys get hired as consultants and things like that. So they get around them. Um, uh, and so it deters no one. Um, and if you had a really draconian rule that seriously d- deterred people, then I think you'd really have a hard time recruiting top people to the government. So what I think is um, you break the system by recruiting different people, as I say, different ages, paying them better because, um, you know, uh, not everybody's motivated by money. Um, they want to feel good about their jobs. They want to feel righteous. They want to feel like they're bringing justice um, to the world. And uh, what you they do need to do is make a basic salary that um, you can survive uh, and not more than survive, be affluent and comfortable in a city like New York or Washington, which are extraordinarily expensive. Um, so that's that's sort of where I come down on the solutions. To okay, this. we're going to switch gear here just uh, in the time remaining. You mentioned before we started that you're doing more uh, research and investigation on the whole issue of antitrust. Yeah. Not just regarding uh, the financial sector, but corporate America in general. Yeah, okay. exactly. Do you want to say a few things about that? Sure. Um there's uh, some very interesting and exciting economics research now about the increasing 
concentration in the American economy. And now we are seeing levels of concentration in corporate America that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, um, since the robber baron era, uh, since before the antitrust laws were passed. Um, and there are a wide variety of reasons for this. But people are starting to wonder and starting to research whether a whole set of ills in the economy are related to this, not necessarily singly caused by concentration, but um, that concentration exacerbates. Um, and what I'm talking about is capital's power over labor, wage stagnation, profits are at Corporate profits are at a peak, but wages continue to stagnate. Um, we're also seeing small business formation very slow in this country. We're seeing innovation crisis where uh, we have very little innovation in the country. Um, and uh, what, so are, what are the sectors where you're most con you're most uh, concerned about the concentration of, of market share or of, of wealth? Well, what's what's astonishing is it's basically everywhere you look. Um, it's kind of like the matrix. We're seeing concentration in um, almost all uh, sectors of the economy. What you're seeing is um, two kinds of dominant companies. One, as we're all familiar with, is kind of rise of the new tech giants like Facebook, Amazon, Google. These are sort of networking monopolies, um, uh, you know, especially Facebook. Um, and Uh, and so the antitrust world doesn't know how to deal with these people at all. Um, they don't have the kind of answers. But you're, uh, you're seeing them make acquisitions that increase their market power, and you're seeing accusations that they're using their market power to, um, uh, to anti-competitive effects. The DOJ investigated Google and uh, ended up dropping that case, but the Europeans are pressing on with a case against Google similar to the accusations that they leveled against Microsoft in the 1990s. I mean, um, I would imagine the case of Facebook is particularly challenging because, um, you know, part of the appeal of Facebook is uh, you go there because that's where everyone goes. If yeah. you, you know, if you set up a, a rival system, first of all, it's going to be a long time before all your contacts are there again. And most people don't want to be on two platforms. So in Absolutely. a way, it's, it's a... By nature, uh, monopolistic. It's it's monopolistic and um, uh, and potentially very troubling. And the antitrust uh, regime in this country has no answer for it uh, because the most interesting thing about Facebook is that it's free to the customers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, are they exercising their market power in other ways? And um, that's okay. Our antitrust laws properly, I think, say if you have built a better mousetrap and the world comes beats a path to your door, um, we're not going to. We don't want to stop that as a government. But what we do want to stop is anti-competitive behavior. Um, and so there are rumblings that Facebook uh, squeezes um, smaller businesses, but that's something that we really need to look I at. I think that maybe um, on the side of advertising, I have friends who work on advertising and who exactly. tell me that uh, Facebook and Google control a lot of the advertising dollar nowadays or, or command exactly. a lot of and, uh, and can squeeze small businesses and, and uh, stifle innovation. Now, I'm not, um, I'm not commenting directly on Facebook because we haven't done any reporting on that, um, right. but that's a possibility. Um, so what it is is that um, what we're going to try to do is bring a lot of reporting muscle to these questions that are swirling around academic and policy circles but haven't really been reported out. 
Um, and uh, my my colleague is going to have a story uh, soon um, in the Washington Post. Uh, we hope about um, U.S. Air and American, and uh, that was a merger that left four carriers in charge of eighty percent of the market. Um, and the Department of Justice wanted to block that merger between American and U.S. Air and reverse themselves, um, kind of mysteriously. And he tries to dig in and try to figure out why why that is. So we're seeing consolidation. I was saying we we have tech giants on the one hand. Then we're also seeing um, the other kinds of oligopolies rise up of companies that are just acquiring each other, the product of mergers. So you see four airlines con, um, controlling 80% of the market. You see Whirlpool and Maytag controlling 80% of washers and dryers. You see Cisco and U.S. Foods, which actually tried to merge, um, controlling a huge amount of food delivery. You see... Um, I mean, some of these, unlike the case of Facebook, perhaps, would be, uh, I imagine, easy to resist if you're... Uh you know, if you work in the antitrust division of, of, of the Justice Department. But why, why do, you th do you think there's less willingness now to stop some of these mergers for some reason? So um, in the last couple of years, you've seen the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission wake up to um, this problem and start to find a little bit of spine in blocking some of the mergers, U.S. Food Cisco, as I um, just referred to, Comcast Time Warner was a merger that they tried to block, uh, AT&T T-Mobile. Um, so there are some cases where they've tried to block some mergers, um, but they let a lot of mergers through that are deeply problematic. InBev, um, uh, Anheuser-Busch, and InBev, SAB Miller, um, one of the big concerning mergers. Uh, Ticketmaster Live Nation was an incredibly comp controversial merger. Um, and there are there are many others. So there's one there's one aspect where they're maybe not blocking enough. The what's happening is the mergers are so audacious that people say they have no choice. When Cisco and US Foods say they want to merge Cisco that's the, the food service company. The food not, service company. For S our listeners who are not familiar with CO, exactly. S Y S C O, right. Um, they, uh, that was the number one and the number two player in the business trying to merge. Office Depot and Staples tried to merge. That was the number one and the number two player in the, in the business trying to merge. And they're so audacious that they basically had no choice but to block them, um, the government, that is. So um, you're seeing that. But what you don't see anymore, what we used to have in this country, which we don't seem to have anymore, is um, uh, governments going after monopolies. The last really big case was Microsoft. Um, and in fact, Microsoft is kind of seen as a, it's kind of analogous to the Arthur Anderson case, which is kind of, it's seen as a kind of mistake by the government, but in fact was um, probably the right thing that led to a lot of innovation, um, led in some ways to Google and Google's existence. And, um, uh, and the Bush administration undermined the remedies of it to some extent, it was a Clinton administration action. But that's really the last one. We used to attack monopolies in this country. We don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to understand why not. Right. Without getting too deeply into the politics, because that could keep us for another hour or so. Yeah. Do you, um, are you drawing or are you tempted to draw a straight line between um, everything that's gone on in the last few years and the rise of some, uh, let's say, unconventional candidates? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the lack of prosecutions um, is a major factor in two of the most potent social movements of our time, 
um, and I'm talking about Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party. The Tea Party was fired by an anger about the bailouts, it was uh, the bank bailouts. It was incoherent um, and um, mixed a lot of things together, like the stimulus plan and the ba- bailouts. And um, but there were fired by this deep sense of injustice. Um, the Democrats, um, sort of elite technocratic Democrats didn't focus on prosecuting individuals because they were more focused on fixing systemic problems. So they passed Dodd-Frank. What they didn't recognize about Dodd-Frank, the big financial reform, is that without the prosecutions um, to bolster it, it undermines the notion that Dodd-Frank is a significant reform. Um, because people say, well, the bank bankers themselves got off. So nobody believes Dodd-Frank is effective. Um, the bankers say it's it's overly effective. Um, there are no real supporters of Dodd-Frank because um, the critics say it's ineffective. Um, it wasn't dramatic enough. It was too incremental. And part of that is because we didn't have the prosecutions to go alongside with side of it. So I think the lack of prosecutions is a major contributing factor to the anger in the country. And these two m- movements that you mentioned, the Tea Party and uh, Occupy Wall Street, the 2016 reincarnation is uh, through the Trump movement and the Bernie Sanders. Do, do you see that? Uh, I do. Uh, certainly in Sanders, because Sanders uh, campaigned explicitly on it and on reinstating Glass-Steagall. Um, I think um, it's less pronounced with Trump just because um, he's so incoherent. Um, he doesn't have policies. Mm-hmm. He says whatever th- anything is on his mind at the the last moment that he um, has the thought. And so he has dabbled with some of these uh, notions. He's sort of said, we're going to get rid of the carried interest uh, loophole and sort of played to but these But it's arguably ideas. the same constituency, perhaps. It, it, A it, lot it's of the same constituency. Anyway. It hasn't fired him nearly as much as um, racism and xenophobia, frankly, mm. um, and then trade. Uh, clearly, trade, uh, immigration, and trade has really fired him more than he doesn't really talk about the financial right. crisis. But you know what has what is absolutely true is that the Democratic Party abandoned um, the middle class, the w- working class, um, the white working class in many ways, um, and so they're looking around, um, white males feeling abandoned and angry. And they're turning to Trump. All right. Thank you very much for joining me, Jesse Isinger. Thank you. Jesse Isinger has a forthcoming book from Simon and Schuster about white collar prosecutions. I'm Sammy J. Karam from Populist. Thank you for joining us.